When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Iris Berry from Punk Hostage Press, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast with Pleasant Gaiman. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, the Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hi, I'm Pleasant Gaiman, and welcome to the devil's music, a Pantheon podcast. As the devil himself apparently once said via the Rolling Stones, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a rock and roll witch from Hollywood, California. My obsession with music and the occult started at the age of 12 and is still going strong. During the 70s, I was one of the first punks in Los Angeles. I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go and had a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to writing a rock and roll gossip column in the LA Weekly, which in turn led me to writing for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s through the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've been a professional dancer who's toured around the globe teaching and performing, and you've probably seen me dancing in a number of music videos, feature films, and documentaries. I'm also an actor with several film credits. Find out more about me at PleasantGaiman.com. I'm really excited to be a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network of Rock and Roll Shows. Everyone at Pantheon tells spectacular stories about the music we love so much, each one with a different twist. Find them all at PantheonPodcast.com, as well as on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio.com, Pandora, hell! I just had to say that. Anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what we're doing here, Head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend, or I'll put a spell on you. Kidding.
Hey, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast. Today, my guest is a wonderful, wild lunatic. We've been friends for, I don't even want to say how many decades, <laughs> but we met each other in the early 90s. My guest is Jeff Drake of the band The Joneses, who were and still are an extremely popular glam punk trash and thrash rock and roll combo. Jeff is the incredible frontman, singer, guitar player, and founder of The Joneses. He's also an author. He's got a book coming out sometime very in the very near future, um, but it, we don't have a release date because of cough, cough, supply chain problems with glue for books but he's got a book coming out and this is going to clue you into some of what this podcast is about um and guilty my life as a member of the joneses a heroin addict a bank robber and a federal inmate and i'm just here to tell you guys this isn't even like a fraction of the story but also the joneses have um a three releases coming up this spring and let's all just knock on wood to make sure that that's not, you know, supply chained. Um, there's three volumes um, and all of them are called Jones in it's on projectile platters label and one's coming out in May, one's coming out in June and one's coming out in July. You'll be able to get it at Discogs or your local indie record store, or hopefully your local chain record store, because this has everything the Joneses recorded on it. And the Joneses are such an amazing band and have such a wild story. Without further ado, let's cut to the chase and introduce Jeff Drake. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Good, Pleasant. How are you? I got to correct you, though. We've actually known each other since the early 80s. Not the early oh, 90s. Did I, sorry. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm senile. I'm going senile over here. Yeah. We're <laughs> older than you thought. Wait, my, my mind is having a supply chain issue. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we were only nine when we met, so it works out. Yeah, we met in second grade. Now, <laughs> actually, I think that um, that we met um, during the, um, during the uh, recording and especially the party for Hell Comes to Your House. And um, it was Hell Comes to Your House Volume 2, which was released on Enigma Records in 1983. And this was how my band, The Sirens, got signed to Enigma. And along with The Sirens and The Joneses, some of the other bands that were on it were Tex and the Horseheads, Blood on the Saddle, The Minutemen, Lotus Lame and the Lame, Lame Flames. I think it might have been the Cambridge Apostles. There was a bunch of LA bands. Yeah. It was like the cream of the crop. Oh yeah, the Mau Mau's were on it too. So in those days, all of us used to play together a lot, like the Sirens and the Joneses played together frequently. But before we get into how insanely sick and wild the early 80s were, let's talk about how the Joneses started. So I know you're you're like the main founder of it, right? Yeah, uh, it was actually by accident. Me and Steve Olson, the skateboard king, had been in rockabilly bands together, and I kept getting kicked out. And then he would join another band and bring me along, and I would get kicked out again. And so we decided we would start our own thing. So with Ron Emery from TSOL and Mitch Dean from Tans in the Sun, Mitch had um, a couple openings, opening for Missing Persons and the Dickies at this place called Alpine Village in Torrance, 
Oh, that uh, place Christmas. was great. That place was great. Sorry. That place yeah, was Christmas, great. Christmas 1982, those were our first gigs opening for Missing Persons in the Dickies. And uh, we just kept it going. It was never really meant to be an ongoing thing, but um, it just happened that way. Thankfully for me. <laughs> How come you kept kept getting kicked out of other bands? I just want to know. <laughs> uh, well, so back in those, else? <laughs> back it was their fault. Back in those days, um, the rockabilly scene was uh, kind of clean cut. I called it, you know, little howdy duty, and I kept getting kicked out because I would play with distortion on my guitar, and I was a little too. Uh, I don't know, I guess rock and roll. I mean, I would work, me and Steve had these huge pompadours and wore the leather jackets and we were like sort of the dark side of rockabilly. And uh, that wasn't really what was happening right at that point. No, you got you guys had way more of a, like a debauched sort of um, early New York punk or New York dolls and just crazy ass mixed with like, like good pop and glam rock and just gnarly. It was, your, your gigs were wild. Um, yeah, I don't even remember exactly how we met, though. Do you, or was it just a no? Time? I don't. It was it was sometime around uh, 1983. I'm guessing. Uh, I we talked about this before not long ago, and I couldn't figure it out either because uh, I remember knowing you, but I don't remember how we first met. It might have been at that party. Um, it might have been at a show. Um, I think you're the one that told me to steal John James out of Levi and the tribe. So I knew you before we went on tour with John, but then when he would tell me stories about you, I don't think I knew you yet. Cause I was like shocked, but <laughs> what do you mean? Shocked at the stories? Horrified. Right. Because he didn't like you. So it was like the worst of pleasant, you know, like pleasant's greatest hits only, uh, you know, the worst. Oh my God. So I don't know, sometime oh God. around early 83. So yeah, 83 was when I when I started the Scream and Sirens because I was also in the rockabilly scene because my husband was Levi Dexter, but I was also too wild for the rockabilly scene. <laughs> I was like fucking, you know, out of my mind wild. So um I right. didn't fit in with the girls that were trying to be 50s housewives. Like I, I was, right. I was like, Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wear that shit, but I was also like, you know, insane. You, you had your own style. You had your own style. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. <laughs> My gosh. Um, okay, so, I mean, the Joneses and Tex and the Horseheads and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and um, let's see, who else? There was a, a few other bands around, plus, plus the Sirens. Um, we were always playing together. We played together at so many shows. Right, right. Um, like all over LA. And this was, it was, all of the bands were friends, but it wasn't even only because of that. You know, it wasn't like we were trying to right. get each other on each other's gigs. It was, this was kind of, even though this was probably around 83 and 84 going on a little bit there, it was still people that like were technically in the punk scene, but not in what the punk scene had become because the, the punk right, scene at that point was all like hardcore. And none of us liked that. We liked having fun and we liked being completely wild, but we, you know, it got kind of just boring and, and, you know, it was like, yeah, well, kind of not in the Ramones way in the stupid way. Right. Kind of jockish and real violent. 
yeah, way jockish. And for a boy to be saying that, I know it was true, you know, because all the girl, all the girls bailed out of the, the early punk scene. And then the, the scene that opened up in the 80s was kind of cool because it really was kind of like anything goes, you know what I mean? Like, like what the Joneses were doing, like really just, I, I don't want to say classic rock because people will think of metal, you know, but um, it was it was way more rock and roll than it was punk. And then bands yeah. like Tex and the Horseheads were trying to be a blues band but not really trying to, you know, it was trying to be swampy blues, but it was, that was just total chaos and, and amazingness right, on right. stage. The sirens, our, our um, whole, you know, thing that we wanted to have was I wanted to have a band of all girls that was kind of like an all chick biker gang that looked like saloon girls and had, had vocals like the Andrews sisters or really old Loretta Lynn kind of country, but we only ever played stuff pretty much at punk speed, you know? So and I think you succeeded at your goal. You told me one time that you wanted the sirens to be like a female version of the Joneses. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, because that's exactly, that was, it, it had, we, our bands had the same aesthetics, I think, you know, like very much. Yeah, because at times stuff. the Joneses were more, way more like a little gang than a band because uh, we didn't really rehearse that much or anything, but um, very gangish in our activities. Right. Gangland. <laughs> Yeah, we were we were gangland too, like all the girls. We always went out in a pack, as you know. <laughs> in yeah. my band, we were really good friends. And we rehearsed all the time, but then we would drink so much and take so much drugs on stage it didn't seem like it sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, I was I always went by the theory that, you know, you need to practice how you play. So if you're loaded at rehearsal, you know, you gotta get loaded on stage or else it's not gonna work. And vice versa, you know, if if you're loaded at rehearsal and you try to be straight on stage, it's not gonna work. If you're straight at rehearsal and try to get loaded on stage, not going to work. You got to practice how you play. Yeah, that's true. But we would we would have we would have like special practices just for the vocals. Do you know what I mean? Like in like those ones, we were usually at someone's house, so we were drinking. But <laughs> you guys are way more pro than we were. Yeah, we were. Well, we you know like girls always had more to prove, kind of. Right. Right. Um, but so, so how long did the first lineup of the Joneses last? Because then you started like switching members a lot, right? Oh my God, there were so many. Well, Ron Emery was only in the band for about a month at the beginning. And then we got this other guitar player, a guy named Rick, who was in it for about a month. And then we got Steve Houston, who was in it for about uh, a little over a year. And then um, Steve Olson was in it for maybe a year and a half before he quit. I mean, band members came and went so fast. Um, it seemed like every year there was a new lineup. And I think in 1983, the lineup turned over twice. Yeah, the Sirens was kind of like that too. And some, I mean, some, there was other bands like that because, you know, in those days, I'm just explaining this to the audience because you already know that. In those days, that nothing happened in real time, like the way it does on social media now. You know, like like stuff would happen, but like you wouldn't the general public wouldn't know about it, you know, or, you know, if someone left the band, you'd have to like send an ad into, you know, a hard copy paper or just ask people to substitute for you or do that. So it didn't in some sometimes, you know, like in between records, it didn't seem like there'd been so many people in and out of a band. But, you know, also in those days, everything was very disorganized as far as 
you know, record companies like seeing and noticing what was going on in the quote, quote, underground scene in LA because it wasn't even called alternative then, you know, there was, Not there yet, was almost yeah. no such thing as college radio in those days, you know, that I remember that. Right, college radio got big about 1986 and the, and the Joneses were fortunate that I knew you because anytime we needed to get any kind of word out, you were doing your la-di-da column. And so it's like, I had a pipeline through the LA weekly, you know, with any Joneses news. Yeah, that was it. That was good. I was like, I was booking, I was booking Cafe de Grand and, 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 or Rodgers at various times and writing for the weekly and being in a band. That was, that was kind of like a czar in those days. (laughs) (laughs) I had my, I had my fingers in a lot of pots. Um, But so I, I'm, I don't even remember like when the first time I saw you guys play, but um, the, the scene then for for anybody that's listening there there was there was pretty many like you know places to play in Los Angeles and in the greater Los Angeles area and you know Orange County and all around southern and northern California bands often went on van or car tours you know this was this whole that whole thing was going on in full force but there was also so many illegal events going on or unusual events, meaning that they were at a legal place, but it wasn't like a normal place that um, you would see a band. Like, Jeff, weren't you guys on that gig at the Kit Kat Club? It Wasn't it like you, like the Joneses and the Sirens and the Red Hot Chili Peppers at the Kit Kat Club, that strip club on Santa Monica Boulevard? No, those didn't do that. Right around that time, we were playing the plant a lot. Remember the plant? And yeah, of course, we, me and you played the plant a lot. But yeah, and the music machine, but and the lingerie, but um, no, I, I Jones didn't play the Kit Kat Club. At least not with me. I think the Kit Kat Club was the first place that Chili Peppers wore um, socks on their dicks. But it was because it was a strip club. It was this was a hardcore right. old school strip club? You know what I mean? The, right. like, there'd never been a band there. And I, I think maybe after that night, there never was again. <laughs> um, I think I went there, but I don't think, I know we didn't play there, but yeah, I think I was there that night. Yeah, it's all a blur. Um, but at the plant, I remember one night where it was um, where it was you guys and the Chili Peppers and my band. And um, so I was, I was talking to somebody at the bar and this would never happen nowadays, not just because I'm older and wiser, but I was talking to somebody at the bar in between sets and he, he, um, he told me he was a hypnotist and I said, really? And I was like, I want you to hypnotize me. And he said, okay. So um, we went out in the back parking lot, which seemed like a totally perfectly normal thing to do in those days you know <laughs> <laughs> You're so trusting. Wow. well I was also shit-faced but I mean <laughs> right, right. but I'm no he seemed like a regular it was like a rock and roll person you know what I mean it wasn't like some lurking old man which meant in those days it would have been someone who was like around 30 maybe or something but um so I remember he opened the, his car door because I didn't have a car it was only like the sirens van and it was I didn't have the keys and I don't want to go in. I just wanted to see if I could get hypnotized. And so I was fully conscious that he was hypnotizing me. And I didn't think I was really hypnotized. I was laying in the front seat of his car, but I couldn't fucking move. I mean, I really right. couldn't move until he snapped his fingers. And then I went back in as though everything was normal and just did a set. <laughs> <laughs> 
it wasn't even until I thought years later, I was like, who the fuck goes out and gets hypnotized by a complete stranger in a parking lot in the valley? <laughs> That's because the plant was, I met, uh, uh, remember it was a tiny, like a restaurant or something because backstage was the kitchen. Yeah. And one night we played there, I got off stage and I met Ronnie James Dio. You know that little midget heavy yeah, metal yeah. guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah, was it was he, crazy. What was he doing there? He was, you know, I don't think he was there to see us. I'm not sure, but uh, he seemed to be having a good time. He wanted to meet me. <laughs> so, um, okay, well, let, well, you, you didn't. He didn't take you out and hypnotize you or anything, did he? No, no, no. I think I might have shaken hands with him or tapped him, uh, patted the top of his head or something. <laughs> That's okay. <so> <laughs> um. Okay, so let, let's 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 get let's paint a picture for the listeners about what um, this period of time was like in the in the early '80s in LA. Um, but before that, before we do that, we're gonna listen to some Joneses. Anyway, Jeff, let's talk about what what things were like in the um, in the in the early to mid '80s in LA. Like like just the well, like what was your favorite club back then? Or, or before we start getting into parties and stuff. My favorite club to play or just to you, go you to, to or play or to hang out at, you know. Um. Well, I really liked the club lingerie, and I really liked um, the music machine because they would let me drink for free at those places. I could get in free and drink for free and all that. Um, but, you know, the, the way things were back then, at least, you know, right before the Joneses started, it seemed like there was hardcore punk like we talked about, and there was, like, heavy metal, like Motley Crue was just sort of coming out, and there was nobody that just played kind of sleazy rock and roll, and that's what me and Steve Olsen wanted to do, and that's really why we started the Joneses, because... Nobody could kick us out of our own band. And um, just because there was nobody doing music like that, we felt like we needed to do that. That's what we wanted to do. Yeah. We used to tell yeah. people, uh, the Jones, when people would ask, they hadn't heard the band, we'd say we were like the New York Dolls meeting Eddie Cochran at Chuck Berry's house, something like that. Yeah, with like a, with, the, with the drugs, the Velvet Underground and the Jimi Hendrix experience had. <laughs> 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 and more <laughs> on skateboards <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so well i just remember um so many after hours clubs and illegal clubs in la then i don't think the police had any idea that anything like that was going on also the the parties back then were so insane and did you like did you ever play at bob forrest sunday club at Cathay de grand we're talking about no, but I remember, um, I remember the Zero Club that yeah. we used to go to over on Wilcox and uh, was that I, Wilcox and Hollywood Boulevard? Yeah, and it opened at two a.m. Yeah, and it, that was so we would there after a gig and drink, and then it would close at six, and we would walk across the street to the Frolic Room, which opened at six. 
Yeah. And just keep it going. Yeah. And, and keep it going and going. For a while there in the 80s, whenever I, I would bump into Jeff on the street, because a lot of us didn't have cars or we were too drunk to drive them. Um, I remember I'd, I'd run into you like, you know, on my way to the post office in Hollywood or somewhere. And I'd be like, hey, Jeff, want to go to a party? And uh, this uh, would always be at like two I had a car. <laughs> not, not even only because you had a car, but just um, this got to be a joke with us because... <laughs> the first time I asked him if he wanted to go to a party, I think it wound up lasting four or five days. But it, yeah, it, yeah, because I was able to just disappear for several days and nobody would miss me. And uh, speaking of my old Mustang that we used to ride around, and you told me that riding in that car was like uh, going on a ride at Disneyland. I'm not sure exactly what you meant, but you want to expand on that a little bit? Well, because that was of the way you drive, you drove, you know? <laughs> okay. I mean, plus it looked. I mean, it was kind of thrill ridey because you'd be like squealing around corners and stuff. But um, let's talk about that first party I took you to before this started being a tradition. This was at this um, was at this beautiful old Hollywood building, which is still standing, um, called the Trianon, and um, it was owned by um, Douglas Fairbanks and uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting her name. Anyway. Uh, uh, it'll come to me in a second. It was total old Hollywood glamour, but just like other punk and rock and roll apartments that had preceded it, like the Canterbury Arms in the 70s, the glamour there was was obvious. Like the apartments were huge and they all had like little dressing rooms and stuff. But the only people that were living in those places were like, you know, elderly movie extras from like the, you know, <laughs> post-World War II era or, um, you know, junkies and hookers and stuff, but the, the apartments were always fabulous. So I knew there was- It was a, a beautiful building. Yeah, the building was incredible and now it's been restored. It looks like a castle for anyone that's not yeah. not seeing it or doesn't know Hollywood, um, but it was in central Hollywood and it was a giant, um, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, Mary Pickford. Yeah, the people- Douglas Fairbanks Jr., I think. Yeah, anyhow. So I told Jeff, let's go to a party. And it was like two in the afternoon. Now you have to take over from how it even started, Jeff. Well, it was Halloween. Was that it Halloween? Was a Halloween? It was a Halloween party. And um, was did we take mushrooms before? I was on some kind of hallucinogenics. I don't want to out you, but I don't, I'm not, you probably were too. No, I, like I, I always was in those days on some kind yeah, of. Yeah, okay. So we were probably both on mushrooms. And um, it was at Lux and Ivy from the Cramps. It was at their apartment. So if you can imagine going to a Halloween party at Lux and Ivy's house, um, I don't know. It, it's it's uh, it's hard to imagine anything scarier, really, in, in every sense of the word. And um, when we opened, when we knocked on the door, the front door, this naked woman answered the door, this beautiful naked woman. She was like the greeter, hostess or whatever. And then after a little while, the entertainment came out and then what would you guess, about maybe 400 pounds, maybe 450, these dancers, um, big women. Was there a guy too, or was it just women? I don't remember if there was a guy. I thought yeah. this happened at the Lame Flames apartment, though. At the Lame Flames apartment? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was at Lux and Ivy. No, Lux and Ivy, I think, were just there. But like Cindy, Lotus Lame was the one that hired those, those dancers. Oh. Well, you probably know better than I do. I was on mushrooms. Well, I knew the people that were having the party, but 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 that was yeah, that was so insane. There was like just 
it was uh, <laughs> neither, <laughs> neither one of us were prepared for like a middle-aged naked woman to answer the door <laughs> no 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 At, like you know in the afternoon i mean everything that was happening in those days was so absurd um yeah and in those days you it seems like uh, maybe it's because we were young but yeah you could disappear for a couple days and uh the world didn't stop turning, you know? Yeah. You just plop right back where you were. Or, or um, what about that time we went to Tijuana? I don't even remember how that one started. Um, were we all playing I, together? Uh, I went down with you. You were The Sirens were playing at that club in, in San Diego across from the dog kennel. Remember that? They always had the barking dogs. Yeah. I don't and, remember what it was called. It probably started that. Started, started with that? I'm not sure. I don't remember. I don't remember either. I remember, though, you remember this? Uh, I somehow ended up uh, falling asleep or passing out on the floor at Disgraceland, your former home. And I woke up in the morning with my head in a box and my pants <laughs> down around my knees. And I think I might have been taken advantage of in some way. I'm not sure by who. And I doubt I could have performed well at, in the stage I was in, but state that I was in, but yeah, I woke up with my head in a box. Okay, we'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hi, we're back. <laughs> well, at least it was still attached to your body. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, there is that. And there were no scars, no wounds, nothing like that. Do you um do you were you do you remember the days of the the craps table at at this Graceland? Mike Mark Mike Mark from Texan the Horseheads brought over a craps table. He got it somewhere. I think he might have even won it in a in a in a crap game and we had to roll dice for anything like if the, if the phone was ringing everyone that was in the space <laughs> line would have to roll the dice and, and whoever got the, most, the number had to answer it because it was on you know <laughs> that was the line. i don't remember the crap table i remember one time me and john james went over there and uh 
we used to just walk in and unfortunately Mike Mike Mart was getting a blowjob on the couch. He's like, Don't you guys knock? <laughs> so then I think we started knocking. Hi Mike. <laughs> yeah. Oops, sorry. Maybe that's what that um that Marilyn Monroe movie, Don't Bother to Knock, was about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mike, you can introduce us to your friend. Oh, she's got her mouth full. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, I remember even in those days, we used to, if, even if a guy was coming in to like turn off the electricity or the gas or something, we'd make him free craps with us. Oh, yeah. And as far as I know, no, no delivery people were harmed um, at this place <laughs> <laughs> or were discovered in a compromising position. But I do remember one, one day someone came in to shut something off and, um, Joe Wood was passed out in front of the door and the guy was trying to like wedge the door open to come in. He's like, hello, gas company or whatever, you know? And he's like, there's, there's a guy lying here. And we're like, just walk over. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy did and took a, two, a few steps into the, um, into the living room. And then he turned around and he's like, is that guy okay? And we're like, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> just Joe Wood. Yeah, that was Joe Wood. <laughs> <laughs> but he could he, Joe Joe could have been interchangeable with many of the um you know with many of the people that were uh regulars know, yeah regulars like people some people would like go there for one party and stay for days um yeah it was a great location because it was just right across the street from the club lingerie right off Sunset Boulevard yeah and it, and all the other clubs it was like you know it was really close except for the ones that were in west l a but you could you could walk right. all the heart the bars on Hollywood Boulevard and there was always a lot of parties um do you remember when the Joneses took over the um the Montecito hotel you were in on that right the what the Montecito hotel remember that hotel it used to be like a classy hotel and um they they closed it because someone bought it and then maybe you weren't. This was like <clears throat> this was like in a, a time period with um where Bob Forrest and Flea and Anthony were living at this building called La Leyenda, which means the legend in Spanish. And I was living at the Spaceland. And then um I thought you were in on this, like like you guys or some people of the Joneses bribed the security guy that was watching it with Jack Daniels and gave him some weed. And then he just let everyone into the building because all the furniture was still there and the power was still on. Oh, no, I wasn't part. Remember that building in uh, uh, West L.A. called the Who's Who? Remember oh, yeah. That, that, that old building called the Who's Who where oh, everybody God, lived yeah. there? Describe that, that to people because this was this was like this was like really like um it was kind of like the Chelsea Hotel. I think it had once been like I think it was once a residence for women that were trying to be models. Do you know what I mean? Like a like oh, yeah. a, a Barbizon hotel kind of place. This place was shaped like a U kind of around around a swimming pool. But that yeah, was right. like the, the West LA equivalent of like the Canterbury Arms or Disgraceland. It was like all the beachy and west la punk people were living there so yeah right, talk, right, talk right. about talk about um the who's who that place was nuts yeah there was a, a lot of girls that lived there i dated some girls that lived there and 
Remember, there was these really wild ones that used to smoke quaaludes out of a bong. I had never seen that before until I went to the Who's Who. And there was this guy named Reynard that used to wear a trench coat no matter what the weather was. And he sold these things called loads. Oh, yeah, loads. The most dangerous drug I ever took in my life. Tell, tell people what we're in loads because no no one there's no um no one has loads anymore or even no that was a, that was a wild thing it was actually six pills in a load it was uh, four codeine fours and two Doradin which is a hypnotic and you would get so loaded at least I would I would be loaded for like thirty six hours I would just take a half a load so three pills we had this guitar player in the Joneses named Johnny Sage who would take three loads which was eighteen pills. And just turn into a puddle on the floor. Wait, what I mean, was the you, other drug that wasn't the coding? It was called Dordan. Dordan. It's a hypnotic. It would make you go cross-eyed. Wow. Yeah, I remember loads from um, that was that so was like for 15 bucks, you could be more loaded than you wanted to be for like a day and a half. Yeah. That and like I said, I would cut them in half and, and still get as loaded as I wanted. Those yeah. are great. <laughs> That was that was that was insanity loads. There was there was also that was when everyone that was before also amyl nitrate was being called video head cleaner. There was a lot of that going around. Right, right, right. And that right. was when quaaludes were still in existence too. Oh yeah, and those loads you either had to go down to Crenshaw and Adams to get them, which was really scary, or else hit up uh, that guy Raynard or somebody that was uh, willing to go down there and get them. Sometimes you could get them in Hollywood. I remember they were all in Hollywood, too, loads. Yeah, they didn't last too long, though. Maybe a, a year or two. No, I think that was kind of like the fentanyl of that time. I mean, I'm sure, yeah. a, lot, uh, I'm sure a lot of people, like, died from loads. Because, yeah, they were. there was a reason they were called loads. <laughs> yeah, um, they were very close, to say the least. So how much did you guys tour? Yeah, you were touring pretty much, right? Um, just just twice for the, the whole country. I mean, we would play out of town, San Francisco, San Diego, Las Vegas, stuff like that. But only twice did we go like cross country, you know, back to the East Coast and back. And it was in cars, like you're saying about. We would get these. Uh, there was a place at LAX that would pay you 50 bucks to drive a car coast to coast and deliver it to New York City. And uh, they would start you off with a tanky gas. And we would like tie amps to the roof and like load the car up with equipment, disconnect the odometer because they had they gave you like 10 days to get back there, but you were supposed to go the most direct route. And we would go out of the way to play in Texas or wherever. And so we would disconnect the odometer. And then when we would get back there in like two or three, four days and have the car for like a week after that. So that we'd actually did that twice. Wow. Yeah, we'd go, we'd go back to New Jersey. We had like a home base in New Jersey. And then we would come back uh, in the same, not the same cars, but different cars from the same outfit. And one wow. time, me and Steve Olson had to deliver these cars to this place in, or in Pennsylvania called Telford. And on the map, it looks like it's right outside Philadelphia, but it's actually like in the Dutch country or whatever, Amish yeah. country. Yeah, and they had no where my last name there. is from. That's a, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch. That's my last name. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, like these, they were driving wagons and stuff. And yeah. we got to the place and dropped the car off. And we asked, them, hey, do you have like a shuttle back to Philadelphia? And they said, no. And we said, well, how do we get back to Philadelphia to catch a train? And he's like, I don't know, hitchhike. 
So we were out there hitchhiking in the Amish country. I had blue hair. Olsen had his big pompadour. And luckily, as soon as we stuck our thumbs out, this guy pulled over. He's like, hey, you guys look like you're from California. Anyway, he was from Newport Beach. Gave us a ride all the way into Philadelphia. It was great. Oh, my God. Hitchhiking in the Amish country. (laughs) We got so lucky. I thought, like, the first time we toured, I thought driving through Texas, it was going to be, like, easy rider. And they would find us, like, dead on the side of the highway. But the people were so cool. I mean, the people back there were so nice. Like, oh, look, you guys got blue hair. What do you call that? How do you get it like that? We stopped at this one fireworks warehouse in Missouri. And this woman was working there. And we came walking in. And she called her daughter. Hey, look, there's a band from California in here. Come look at them. Come look at them. (laughs) It was great. Okay, let's take a break. That's really good. There's a band from California. (laughs) We're going to listen to some blue-haired music now, and we'll be right back. Okay, well, here we are again, Jeff, Jake, and I. Um, the last, the last thing we knew, he, he, he was, he was, he was, he was getting the once over twice, having blue hair. All right, so. Oh, so. Go ahead. What else? Tell me some other things. Crazy. We would stop at these fireworks warehouses and buy fireworks, and we would get so bored driving between the cities out in the west. We would like take the firecrackers and throw them at cows, like on you know when they would have like cows on the side of the road to watch the cows run around. That's how we entertained ourselves um, driving from city to city. That's mean. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we would buy condoms and have like water balloon fights between the two cars because we had two cars. But um, you know we were young and stupid and wanted to have fun, I guess. I just we didn't like hurt the, the cows. cows. They would just run around. They just got scared. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. My sister and I, when we were grown-ass adults, we we almost got thrown out of a house we rented on Nantucket because we were throwing like um, water balloons off the roof <laughs> in, in our fifties. You know what I mean? And someone called oh. the police, and we're like, I don't know. There was there was a bunch of children down there just a little while ago. Just <laughs> a little water. Yeah. Um. So, um. Tell, tell, well, okay, well, first of all, I got to say, um, for some reason, uh, I and my friend Iris, we both dated a lot of bank robbers. And people, like, in fact, the list is, is so long that people were saying, is that your type? <laughs> was, no, I think there was a lot of bank robbing going on in those days. So let, let's talk about um, your, your bank robbery experience. Okay. Well, um, I was a heroin addict and that gets really expensive. And, um, like, uh, Willie Sutton, the famous bank robber, the reason I robbed a bank was because that's where they kept the money. I mean, you know, that's, that's obvious. And, um, the way it happened was my connection at the time were these two lesbians 
that uh, they were a couple and they met each other at a halfway house. They both got out of prison for bank robbery. And oh, they, met they were each other bank at robbers too? House. They were bank robbers also? Yeah, that's why they went to prison and they met each other at a halfway house and they both like went on the run from, or uh, I think actually one of them got out of the halfway house and the other one went on the run to be with the other one. And um, they wanted to start robbing again and they knew I had a car and they also knew I had no criminal record, if you can believe that. And um, they would coach me. They'd say, come on, Jeff, it's real easy. You just do this, this and this. And they're trained to give you the money and um, and they'll do it. It's easy. And you just, you know, you don't touch anything. You just take the money and you walk out. And so I would tell them, no, that's not my style. You know, it's like I'll do some stuff, but I won't do that. You know, I won't I won't be a bank robber. And um one day I was really sick. I'd gotten turned away from the methadone clinic and I was walking from Santa Ana to Anaheim in Orange County is about five miles. I was really sick. And I stopped at, stopped at the bus stop just to rest. And I was thinking, I was right in front of a bank and I started thinking about what they told me. I thought, man, I should rob this bank. And uh, right then there was a car accident in front of the bank. And I thought, oh man, the cops are going to be busy with this accident. Now's the perfect time to rob this bank. Well, I was in Anaheim and they have a police force of probably a few hundred policemen. So they had plenty of guys to cover the accident and the bank robbery. So I walked in there and uh, I wrote on a withdrawal note, this is a robbery, give me the money. And I waited in line and then I got to, luckily it was a Friday and I got the merchant teller and I handed her the note and uh, she looked at me and uh, I said, come on, I'm serious, I'm in a hurry. And she just started piling the money on the counter and um you know, hundreds, fifties, twenties, tens. And I said, okay, that's enough. And I shoved the money in my pants and walked out of the bank and then went running across Anaheim Boulevard. And there was like cars zigging and zagging and I'm dodging cars. And um, they had a tracking device on the money. And so they let me, I, I went to my connection South and they chased me out of there real quick because they knew what I had just done. And I went through the money and I didn't see any paper bands or rubber bands or anything like that. So I was looking for tracking devices, but they had a track experimental tracking device that was transparent and the size of a postage stamp tacked on the back of a $10 bill and I missed it. And so then I went, I went to a McDonald's and got loaded and I went next door to a 7-Eleven. I bought a soda and some cigarettes. And I was going to call somebody to give me a ride to the Disneyland hotel and have a big party. But then the cops rolled up on me and I'd already gotten loaded. So I was more concerned that I was loaded. It had been a few minutes since the bank robbery. I didn't think they were connected. Anyway, the guy had a wand and he ran it up and down me. And when it got to the crotch of my pants, it started going off like beep, 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 beep. And, uh, and they handcuffed me and took me to jail. What, what, was, what was in the crotch of your pants? Was that the tag on the money? The money, all the money was shut yeah, in the crotch yeah. of my pants. It was a lot of money and it was like loose. And so I shoved it in the crotch of my pants. And when he when he had his uh, detector device, as soon as it got to the crotch of my pants, it started beeping. So he knew that's where the money was. That's what, that's they what I mean. That, that, that was how, the trapping, tracking device was what beeped, right? Or no? Right. Well, no, the, the wand was what was beeping. The tracking device was just giving off some kind of signal. That's what I mean. And they yeah, were picking yeah. it up. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So then you just went straight to jail? Yeah, I went straight to jail. Actually, uh, the cops drove me through the McDonald's next door and bought me something to eat because they felt sorry for me. They knew I wasn't a career bank robber or anything. 
Um, but yeah, then uh, I, I went and after that, I went to prison for federal prison for three years. Where, what prison were you in? Uh, the first one I was at was uh, MDC down MDC LA, which is right across from Union Station in downtown LA. Uh, it's a federal holding facility. It's like the federal version of a county jail. Yeah. And then I went to Boron, which is a federal prison camp out in the Mojave Desert. And then they sent me to MCC San Diego, which is the same thing as the one in LA, but it's in San Diego. It's a skyscraper in downtown San Diego. And most people only are there for pretrial stuff or parole violations. So they're there for a very short time. But I had to stay there for a year because they sent me there because I had a low security clearance and I wasn't an escape risk. And so they, they needed somebody to go outside and clean up around the building and they could trust me to do that and not escape. And so lucky me, I got set from a camp, which didn't even have a fence around it to like a high rise county jail version in the federal system. Oh, so I wow. kind of got punished for being good. So yeah. I was there for a year. Wow. And then when I got out, um, I had to go to a halfway house in Echo Park for four months. And I remember I came to visit you and I didn't have any clothes. I just had the clothes I got arrested in. And they were all nasty because they'd been in storage for three years. And they were all sweaty and nasty when I got arrested anyway. But I had some like uh, charity clothes that they had at the halfway house. And I came to visit you and you told me I looked like a Las Vegas used car salesman. Well, is it slacks? Was it like slacks? Was it beige cords, corduroys, like beige corduroys, and like a some kind of button-down plaid shirt? Yeah, it was horrible. No, I never. Um, I was. I as soon as you said that, I got like a misty vision of you wearing some kind of a mustard yellow and like burgundy kind of color combination. It was like a lot of earth tones. Beige, yeah, that's what brown. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Horrible. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> and they told you you look like a used car salesman. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's so... <laughs> and I probably had a prison haircut, so I probably looked great, you know. Was that, was that your, your teeth, didn't you get your teeth fixed in prison too? I did. I did. I, I had horrible teeth from using drugs. And um, yeah, they pulled out all my teeth in prison and gave me dentures. Got them fixed. Because yeah. I remember I remember seeing something about your teeth and then you told me that. But I, I mean, I don't know. I always notice people's teeth like that. I remember one time, um, not that this was from prison or anything, but I was looking at this picture of David Bowie and Iman and it was like in Vogue or something. And I, I was I was on an airplane or something and I was staring at it going, what the fuck is wrong with Bowie's face? What's wrong with it? Something is wrong. And then... At, like in a few more seconds, I realized he, he had his teeth were done. They were like perfectly straight. And remember how they used to be all like English rock star toothy? Yeah, yeah. You know English what I mean? Teeth. It totally changed his face. And I liked his old teeth better. But um. huh. I used to have horrible teeth, teeth problems. I had a, for a long time, I had a crown on one of my front teeth. And when I would be singing, it would fly out of my mouth. A couple times it would like be bouncing around on the stage and I'd have to grab it or tell people in the audience, hey, my tooth is down there somewhere. I always got it back. One night at Madame Wong's East, I was ordering at the bar and it came out, went bouncing down the bar. It was kind of embarrassing. I was glad to get them fixed. I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at you. It's just like, you could... It was funny. It was funny. Well, I used Excuse to sit me, on you my... Get my tooth is down there on the dance floor somewhere. And you would just tell that to the audience and someone would find it. They always found it. I always got it back. 
I used to sit on my grandma's lap and she had false teeth and she used to like when she she would like go like that and like like somehow she was able to shove her false teeth out and in and I I was little I was like four or something and I Every time she did that, I remember thinking, wow, I cannot wait until I'm a grown up and I can make my teeth fly out of my mouth and get them back in. Like, <laughs> I thought it was just, you know, like that was like when you grew up, that could happen. You know? You got old, yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting. I can do that with my teeth a little bit. I won't show you, but. <laughs> I'll see it when we're off the air, baby. <laughs> I save it for little kids. They're more impressed. I know you can, yeah, because they can be a grown up like you. So I want to talk about um, a couple of things. First of all, like the book, like what was the the writing process for you? Or how did you decide? I mean, you've you've had such a wild life, you know. And um, disclaimer: I've read I've read some of his book, and it, it's really good. You guys will be riveted to it when it comes out because if you're already hearing just like this stuff that we're talking about off the top of your head, it goes all into a lot more detail um, yeah i think it's going to be a blockbuster for anybody that's interested in like rock and roll debauchery and stuff like that um you know i've been people have been telling me for like 30 years that i should write a book and i just never felt like i was disciplined enough like i would rather somebody write a book about me but nobody was like knocking down my door you know asking to do that and so then about a year ago um my wife left me and I had a lot of time on my hands and um, a friend of mine, Jeff Davis was saying, Jeff, now's, now's the time, you know, you're not getting any younger. You got to write a book and get it all straight, you know, your life and what happened. And um, it took, it was really hard to get started because I had never written. I mean, when I was in school, I used to write like research papers and stuff, but I would write songs, you know, and songs take like 20 minutes to write. And um, this book took me a couple months and, it was really hard getting started. Like I would write like an hour a week and I thought, you know, this is going to take a hundred years. So then I finally um, made myself like do it every day. And when I started doing that, it started coming a lot easier. And like you said, I had a lot of uh, material to pull from, you know, a lot of stories and stuff that happened. And um, it actually, once I got started, it just kind of flowed. I would, I would do it until my back hurt. And um, it actually was a pretty quick process, like from beginning to end was probably about six months. But the first three months, I wasn't really doing it. I was just kind of messing around. And like I said, maybe an hour a week. But then once I sat down and started uh, really focusing on it, um, it came pretty easily. I would uh, what I would do is um, early in the day, I would sit for about an hour and think about what I was going to write. And then I would just pound it out. Yeah, that's good. That's that's like when when I write. I just, I write, um, I'll just write like, you know, either something I want to write a story about or, you know, I'll just, I'll just like have little notes on my computer. It used to be on hard copy, but, and then some, some days I would just play like, like roulette. Like I would just like be going down the file and go, okay, the seventh thing I'll write about that, you know? And, um, uh, it would just, it would like, yeah, I, you know, I, uh... like an assignment or something. Mine was just, I mean, I'm not as, as experienced a writer as you are. I would just be uh, pretty much off the top of my head what I could remember. And sometimes I would have to go back and switch stuff if I, you know, remembered it differently or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was very, at first it was very unfocused, but as I did it more, it became more of a um, a regular thing. 
And uh, like I said, I was trained a little bit in school to do that kind of stuff, like these historical research papers. But um, I never thought I could. I mean, I think it ended up being like 400 pages or something. And I could never imagine that. I never thought I had the discipline to put something that to get. Like I said, I was used to writing songs that took about 20 minutes, not writing books that took months. I don't know if I have another one in me. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. It's good though. I think I think writing is like history, especially for um, you know, there's when like right nowadays when 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 people see things about punk rock or the the rockabilly revival or like even skateboarding or something, all the people that are really interested in it now are younger people. But there, there's so many assumptions they make because they don't know the real story. It's just the same right. as like how if we all liked, um, you know, say we all like Jack Kerouac and all that stuff, you know, like all the beat, yeah. the, the beats from the 50s. We could only assume what it was really like if there wasn't their writing, like just right. putting, it, putting it straight for us, you know. But nowadays, like I see pictures mislabeled all the time because they don't know who someone was who was very important in whatever right. scene but they'll, they'll just put anonymous or something because they weren't there you know right and, and that was what my big motivation was you know i heard so many stories about myself like that i robbed the bank wearing a dress and you know just crazy stories i just wanted to to get the truth out there at least the truth as i remembered it uh and to get it right uh just because i I don't mind. I mean, I don't really like it when, believe it or not, when people talk about me, but I hate what I hate is when they get it wrong, you know? Like if they tell stories, <laughs> at least get it right. What at kind of dress right. would you have worn if you were rocking? <laughs> what kind of dress? Probably like a poodle skirt, like rockabilly. Um, you know, I guess. I don't know. Jack Grisham and I, I had really long hair, so I wouldn't need a wig. Yeah, you had you had really good girly hair. It looked like it looked like a it was a it was it was sort of shaggy in that hot like um Pat Benatar's hairdresser way, but not but not feminine. Do you know what I mean? It just it looked like a really good like slutty layer cut. But I gotta say I did have really good hair back in those days. I was really proud of my hair most of the time. Yeah, it was great. But um, I, w I was talking, Jack Grisham and I were at UCLA once, um, lecturing to like a class on punk rock and he he actually went to jail, not for robbing a bank, but he went to jail wearing a dress. <laughs> <laughs> that's awkward. Yeah, that's awkward. <laughs> that was like the like the time that I was um I was in I was in Civil Brands, the the women's jail downtown and got taken in um like ostensibly for trespassing, but I was at a cemetery and I, I you know I had taken some like lilies and rosaries and stuff and um like there was all these like oh like older you know I was I was like a kid you know what I mean it was it was like, uh -huh. gosh, like barely legal you know um and they were all, all, all just looking at me just getting ready to like you know either beat the fuck out of me or pounce on me and someone walked up to me and she's all somebody you in for like you know what I mean it was like <laughs> total women's prison movie but I was just like you know and I went desecration and she goes desecration what the fuck is that and someone from the other <laughs> side of the room yelled grave robbing and all of a sudden the whole room just went Shh, like that and then i had like the whole bench to myself i mean no one would go near right, me. right. you were like the boss of the block then 
Did she approach you with a broomstick? Was it that kind of a deal at first? Or oh, you mean like a witch broomstick or a Linda Blair born innocent broomstick? Like a Linda Blair broomstick, that kind of, you know. It, it could have gone. It could have gone that way, but instead it went like the they really thought that I was like, you know, like fucking sucking the life out of corpses or something. <laughs> <laughs> So nobody, nobody got near me, which was fine because then when I got released, you know, I didn't have a black eye or anything. <laughs> or no, 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 born innocent kind of shit happened to me that time. Um, I do, I do remember another time I was in jail with a um a couple of girls um from like L.A. rock and roll girls. It was my drummer Boom Boom, and then Karen Radgirl, who was in this um. She was in a, an all-girl um, skateboarding gang called the Hags, and we got we we were on this like police chase. The police were chasing um, a truck that I think it was Rock Vodka's truck, but Bob Forrest, uh, Rock Vodka from Tucks and the Horseheads, and Bob Forrest from Thelonious Monster, but they hadn't started yet. Was driving, but it may not have been. But we were on this wild goose chase through Hollywood with with cop cars chasing us with sirens and we we got all thrown down they, they pulled us over on highland avenue in the middle of rush hour and we all were like face down like on the pavement ready to go face down during rush hour but me and boom and both had on like little denim mini skirts that were about the size of daisy dukes and we we're wearing like fishnets and sweaty underwear <laughs> and at like 8 in the morning and we got immediately dragged to the wilcox the hollywood wilcox station and um, the cops kept coming in and looking through the window. And um, finally, um, there was like, do any of you have any tattoos? And, and then we thought it was for like identifying marks. So we were just saying what right. we had. And then the next thing we knew, there was like a whole bunch of cops at the, at the window of the door taking Polaroids um, of the tattoos. But it wasn't for their booking. It was just because they had never seen girls with tattoos at that point. For their own personal enjoyment when they got home. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like like, like a, a cross between your song Criminals and Miss 714. <laughs> um, so tell, tell, um, tell everyone why don't you kind of what's going to be on the on that the new Joneses records or the old Joneses records. Um, because if you guys haven't, if you're not familiar with the Joneses, it's great. You will, you will love this band. Trust me. I'm sorry. What was the question? I said, um, tell everyone like what, you know, what's going on with this record when it's going to be out, what kind of songs are on it? Is there any live or like outtake stuff or. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's uh, it's nothing on it is is never it's none of it's unreleased stuff. It's all been out before in one form or another, um, but it's everything we ever recorded. There's uh, um, the original single that we did, um, uh, the stuff we did for the BYO album. Someone got their head kicked in the Criminals EP. That's the stuff that's in Volume One. Um, volume two is Hell Comes to Your House, part two, and the Keeping Up with the Joneses album. And then volume three is uh, the Tiss and Champagne and the Anita Fix record. And then there's a, a live song that was recorded at the T-Bird Roller Rink in 1982. That's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, it's everything that, that the Joneses ever recorded. And the, the really cool thing about it is the guy that's doing it, the, the label that's doing it, 
he's really uh, into details. And so he wants to make sure everything's exactly right. Um, so there's liner notes and pictures and inserts and recording information. And um, he wants it to be sort of the definitive Jones's thing for like collectors and people that want to have all the different stuff. Um, uh, and like I said, colored vinyl. And um, I'm really excited. It's the first thing we put out in a long time. Um, and it's it's going to be everything, at least everything that was recorded. Although he found this guy uh, just recently that said he had two boxes of uh, two-inch tape from the criminal sessions, uh, which I don't remember at all. I think the guy's full of, full of it. But um, the guy disappeared when he got fresh for you know, hey, well, you know, bring this uh, newly discovered Jonas recording, Jim, bring him over, and the guy disappeared. So I don't know if that's going to show up or not. Huh. But it's going to be a cool thing for people that like the Joneses. Yeah. And good. if you don't like the Joneses, check it out because you will like the Joneses. I was just going to say exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. Um, okay, you guys. So that was the amazing Jeff Drake. Jeff, is there anything you want to add before we sign off? Not really pleasant. It's just great to finally meet you in person. You know, I've I've sort of worshipped you from afar for so long, and now to be in the same room with you is just really incredible. You know, <laughs> everyone knows it's on Zoom. You're not going to leave this room with your pants down and your head in the box. <laughs> no, I hope I wake up in my bed this morning. Yeah, you will. Um, okay, you guys, that was Jeff Drake. Um, you'll be able to get his book and his um, three compilations soon. And that was that was just a little tiny piece of his wild and crazy life, which you'll be able to read about in his book sometime in the next few months. It was wonderful to have you, Jeff. Well, thank you, Pleasant. Thank you so much for inviting me. Mm -hmm. It was fun. Yes, it was fun. Okay, till next time, you guys. This is The Devil's Music and Pleasant Gaiman and my guest, Jeff Drake, signing off. The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.